Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Atom Podcast. I'm joined by Steve Waugh, the head of technology, or previously the head of technology at XR Trading Europe. Soon to be, if you will keep your eyes peeled in the next couple of weeks, um, a new employee of a fund in London, and he was previously also a member of the team at KCG. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, you, Ollie. It's good to be here. <laughs> good stuff. So I'm going to introduce Steve. I'm going to try and do the best I possibly can with the introduction, but I'm sure he'll, um, he'll take over and do a much better job. Steve has a PhD from Cambridge. Um, he worked in the world of sort of 3G telecoms before making the move in, um, when was it, 08 to 07, 08? 2007. 2007. He said, you know what, I'm jumping into finance. I think um, that was probably the only place where people could go from, from his background where you wanted to take a step up and, and ended up joining Getco, which at the time um was certainly a beast but wasn't the beast that we know of it today um and spent a long time there enjoyed himself made the move over to, to xr where he headed up the technology team for for europe um and has since just secured himself a new role so steve welcome to the show do you, do you want to give a bit of an intro into um yourself maybe a little bit more in depth than what i've just done there oh sure yeah I, mean, I guess i i guess i've had a few different careers over the years uh you know, I, I started PhD in 1992. That makes me quite old. Um, you know, at, at the time of the PhD, I, it was something that I think attracted me because it's very applied research. I went into optical communications, specifically into optical switching. I uh, worked for a guy called Dr. Robert Mears, who was one of the original inventors of the uh, optical amplifier. It's one of the key technologies that we that the world uses today in its telecommunications. And, and I guess, you know, back then in 92, um, you know, the, the raw problem of just getting data around the world was, was effectively essentially solved. You know, a single glass fiber can carry terabits of data theoretically, certainly hundreds of gigabits in, in real world applications. But this was way before Ethernet took over the world. And, you know, although it's only 30 years ago, it's state-of-the-art silicon, you know, an Intel processor at the time was only running at about 100 megahertz. So you had this technology gap between what you could do in an optical domain and what you could do in an electronic domain. And so figuring out how to route data around the world, not just get data from A to B, was, was an area where we felt there was, there was quite a lot of opportunity for us. Uh, you know, just as a, a data point, we were working with Bell Northern Research, became Nortel Telecom. And they believe that there would maybe be only 50 major data centers in the world switching optical networks. And these would be full of, full of silicon, rooms full of, of switching equipment. Of course, that isn't what happened. But at the time, we thought there was opportunity to do stuff in the optical domain. So you know, I, I spent four years on a PhD and you know, another, another few years uh, backed by Venture Angel working on this, this technology where we could do switching in a in an optical domain, which was, a, which was a ton of fun. And, you know, as an engineer, it satisfied my need to be creative and to build things. But ultimately, I guess we were, we were a long way ahead of our time. Um, liquor crystals have come on an enormous way since then. You know, we were using liquor crystals to do this routing between, between fibers. Um, but, but really the, the, the technology or the manufacturing of the technology wasn't really ready. So it took a change of direction. and. And uh, somewhere in the late 90s, I jumped into software, pure software. I joined a, joined a firm doing software-defined radio. We worked on DAB for a bit. And then, like you mentioned, 3G, the emerging 3G standard. And, and you know, I, again, had a lot of, time, a lot of fun building, building these, these technology systems uh, in software. 
as you as you mentioned, you know, I, I was working for a number of you know sort of fairly small venture-backed firms, and you know, by about the mid two thousands, uh, that that venture money was beginning to dry up a little bit. And, and as somebody who you know spent the last eight ten years working in C plus plus, it's like, well, where do you, where do you go now? And it, and it looked like. You know, mid 2000s the answer to that you know the, the place where technology was really being leveraged was finance so we started sort of exploring finance um you know talk well, how, how did gecko actually come about did they just was it like a because when you said they, they didn't have a presence at all online did they so they, was it they, an application they, did you know someone no i mean it was through a headhunter uh <laughs> it just literally you know you could google Gecko in 2007 and maybe two hits would come up. Their public presence, you know, HFTs were very, very secretive back then. Um, you know, as a firm, it originally grew out of a couple of floor traders in Chicago had set up, you know, realized that everything was going to go on screen, become electronic, uh, and it set up Gecko in, in 1999. Um, but, you know, Citadel was around then as well, but these, these firms were not well known, certainly not outside, you know, a fairly, fairly small industry. So I took a bit of a leap of faith, really, you know, I, I, I remember when I, you know, before I joined Gecko, I asked, uh, I asked the CTO, he said, well, is Gecko profitable then? And he sort of gave this sly comment, he said, yeah, I don't, I don't think you've got anything to worry about. That's that. the too fair. That's 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 the sort of someone that's worked in VC back places before, slightly sort of risk averse. Maybe wants to make sure he's joining the right place. And and the CTO at the time must have been thinking, oh, he's the next few years are going to be interesting for him. Then <laughs> I mean, it was it was an eye opener. So I I, I joined Gecko Europe two thousand and seven. The, the 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 firm I think worldwide was about one hundred and twenty people. Gecko London was only about fifteen people. You know, really quite small. Um. And, and they've been successful in Europe, you know, really a, a, a small trading team, trading operations team. Um, but in the US, Getco had taken the BATS investment, uh, invested heavily in, in, in this new exchange as, as a way of really kind of pushing some of the market microstructure to, to become more electronic. And just on the cusp of 2007, they'd taken uh, the similar approach in Europe and taken investment in Chiax Europe. And so I joined them just on the, just on the cusp of MIFID 1 just as Getco was planning this pretty major expansion into, into European markets. Um, and that was, I mean, that was a fantastic journey for me. Um, you know, over, over the coming kind of five, over the next five years or so, spent time building up the technology team in, in London, you know, developers, operations, network teams, and between us and, you know, working very closely with the trading teams, we, we, we spent that next five years really building out our, our platform to all of the major European exchanges, you know, kind of futures and, and a lot of the cash equity exchanges. Mm. Um, and, you know, as you, you hinted, I think, you know, for a lot of that time, Getco was probably the world's biggest electronic market maker, uh, you know, tremendously successful. Not, not, not was, initially in, in equities, but it was oh, cash equities. It was more futures, as you say. But coming from the background you did, was it was it hard to get up to scratch with the, the sort of financial terms? Did you know it already? Or was it really sort of coming in and not having a clue? I, I mean, I think the, the, the great sort of unspoken secret of finance that actually, you know, there, there are some basic concepts that you need to understand, but none of those are particularly complex. They're things that you can pick up reasonably quickly and you know there was a learning there was a learning curve but i think like many of these uh 
you know, technology intensive firms, the learning curve is really getting to understand how things are done within that firm. What does the tech stack look like? How do you, you know, how do you operate within the constraints of the, you know, the production operational environment? And I, and I think, you know, like, I, I think that's true of any, you know, not, not just finance, any complex technology system, it's probably going to take you at least six months, maybe 12 months to become, you know, truly up to speed and effective within that environment. And, and I think, you know, a lot of companies appreciate that and, and um, you know, allow for that, if you like, training time to occur before as, as an individual, you're really going to be able to contribute. And just to, just to sort of finish up on your experience at Ketco, to, to, to really exaggerate how much of really still like almost like a startup it was, but how high performing it was. You had the FCA, FSA sort of drop in, didn't understand prop trading too much and, and almost compared you to other people out there and said, well, there's something going on here because <laughs> there's a chart and you guys actually don't fit onto it. Um, and so you almost had to sort of build a bit more of a corporate structure before everything went on, right? And you ended up getting a new Absolutely. chair. Yeah, I mean, right place, right time, a lot of luck. <laughs> um, yeah, I ended up as, as Getco's European CEO for a couple of years. And, and you know, part of that was um, at the time, the FSA, as it, as it then was, was, was starting to look at these, these prop firms that were emerging. You know, again, very secretive. They didn't know a, a huge amount about them, but could also see that that collectively, they were contributing a huge amount of you know daily trading volume, and it were, were you know beginning to be a little bit concerned about what looked like startups and maybe there's some some, some systemic risk associated with these firms. So they came in pretty hard and heavy with with ourselves and and a number of our our competitors at the time, really trying to do an audit and understand what it was we, we were doing, how we were doing it. I, and, you know, it's sort of informally, they, they gave us this heads up that, that they would do regulatory audits of huge blue chip banks and put this all into a risk spreadsheet. And they'd done something similar for us, for Getco. And this, this risk number had gone off the scale, uh, which is why they had to come in and do this audit. And on the back of that, you know, effectively a very flat organization started to have to have you know, certainly much more kind of corporate identity. We needed to create a board of directors, a non-executive director had to join, you know, risk committees, you know, all the things I think post-MIFID 2 you see today, but, you know, in the, in the kind of early 2010s, that was still relatively new. So, yeah, I, I, got, I got to sit in the CEO seat during that process, which is a, a massive privilege, a, a huge yeah. learning experience, a little bit stressful, but also a lot, a lot of fun. That's amazing. And then so sort of skip on a few years from there. We had the merger happen, which then created KCG, which obviously now today is, is sort of within virtue. Um, spent some some fun years in a slightly slightly wider environment and a slightly different environment, and then had a knock on the door um almost for, for another um US Chicago-based um firm in, in, in XR that asked you to come on board for, for London. So you tackled MIFID one in Getco, and then you had some sort of ultra low latency firm that was about to go on the horizon of MIFID 2 with maybe the tech that, that needed a bit of bolstering up. And so you then came on board and went through Absolutely. phase two of that. 
Yeah, no, it was it was like a, it was like a mini version of Getco, I suppose. Much earlier phase, a very very small European team, again of a Chicago headquartered firm. There was only five people in Europe at the time, mm -hmm. sort of sitting in rented offices, and and they wanted, you know, it, it was interesting. They the European entity had been created on the back of the German HFT legislation. They needed a, 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 a they needed an entity to exist in Europe to continue to trade there wanted to turn that into a real business, needed some help with, with doing that and, and figuring out what the right technology was to develop new trades. I think, you know, when I, when I joined, they had recently moved, you know, a few years previously, they'd been on C Sharp, they'd started into C++. But I think, you know, what, what became clear fairly quickly was, was that stack maybe didn't have the flexibility or, you know, the modularity that would allow us to, to, to uh, build these new trades that we were looking to build in Europe and some of the other regional teams were looking to build. So, um, and as you mentioned, MIFID II with its, you know, much higher kind of regulatory uh, audit requirements uh, was on the horizon. And we knew that um, probably the systems wouldn't really get us through MIFID II. So yeah, you know, myself, my team and some of the other teams within XR started building a new, a new technology stack. Um, and you know it's challenging, but it's also fun. How do you how do you do that in an incremental way? Keep your production environments running whilst continuing to move your your, your technology forward, uh, kind of incrementally. You can't you know these firms you can't build them in a big bang approach. Um, yeah. and, but, and you need yeah. people, right? The, the most important part of that is, is having Absolutely. the right people. And you've 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 worked outside of this industry you've worked within this industry where you almost sort of started off as a c++ developer at getco worked your way up to then holding position of c ceo for europe you're then head of technology for xr europe as well so by the time we get to where you are today you've had more than enough experience of being on either side of it right you you always admitted you're a techie at heart you always have been and it's only through natural progression and maybe opportunity in the market you've had these leadership positions so talk to me about building teams, and, and I think that the way that you and I have spoke about it in the past is building them the right way. I think it's fairly easy to build a team on paper. Um, you can rely on your hiring team, you can rely on the brand, you can say, you know, we need to build this, so let's get loads of people to do it. But how do you do that the right way, and how have you learned to do that over time? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think like you say, it, it is really, really hard. And, and you know, I, I will always tell anyone who asks, I, at heart I'm an engineer, I, I like the creative process, solving problems and, and building things. And, you know, I, I've been incredibly privileged and lucky over the years to work with some amazing companies and to work with some really talented and smart individuals and, you know, also get to work on some really, really interesting, challenging technology problems but I think you know when you've been through that process a few times and seen some scenarios where that has worked really well and maybe some others where it's worked less well you realize that like I guess everything in life that actually it's all about people that often you know an engineering problem is at its heart actually a people problem rather than a technology problem and I, and I think sort of just you know, experience gets you to recognize how, how true that is. And I think, you know, as an engineer, building high performing effective teams in these kind of environments is, is possibly the hardest thing that you, you've ever got to do. And I guess the way I, the way I tend to think about it is that, you know, like approaching any creative process, there's this balance between the individual and the group. And I suppose there's, an equilibrium that you need to establish between what 
as individuals within the team, we all need to, you know, receive to, to thrive and, and to feel valued versus what our job demands from us in order to be effective at, at, at what we do in our work. And I think in order to get the best from your team, you've got to find that right kind of balance between nurture, I guess, and challenge, right? And, and ultimately that's what culture is really trying to achieve. And of course, the great trick, the, 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 the magic is when you get that right and you can maintain and adjust that balance over a long period of time and it becomes sustainable. And, and, and I do think when you, when you do get that right, when you find that right vision and you find the right culture, you establish the right culture, the, the, the team uh, or the teams within the company become really so much more than just the sum of their individuals, right? And so now that creativity, that passion, that drive, that energy, starts to come from the team itself. It isn't something that comes from the top. You know, it's something that culture is important. You have to facilitate it from the top, but the driving force, you know, the engine of the firm starts to come from below. And, and you know, when you do get that right, the, the strong team performing to the best of its, its ability can be absolutely transformative to, to a business. And so you're set you you're managing the team but how do you get to the point where that team then trust you did you rely on your technical background to do that do you rely on your intelligence do you rely on a certain leadership technique is it a mixture of everything i think yeah i mean i think it's a mixture of everything um you know then at the end of the day like like you meant like you say it is about trust it is about establishing trust and i think trust also comes from honesty right it's also about communicating effectively transparently with your people so yeah i mean some of that is being able to engage on a, on a technical level but but there's there's those are kind of more direct things that establish trust like do, do you care for your people are you going to look out for them you know have you all got one another's back do you do you take time? You know, do you establish? Do you encourage team members to all take time for one another? And ultimately, I think you know what you get from that trust is you get to a directness and an efficiency of communication within the team. You know, like just just to be uh, successful in trading, you've got to be efficient with the resources you have available to you. Right? Kind of makes sense. And in a prop firm, particularly, you know, an HFT firm, in particular, what you, what you have really to work with is the capital of the firm and the people. And when you get that trust working within the team, you know, I think there's then becomes an enormous efficiency about being able to speak very directly with one another, with transparency and with honesty, uh, and not have to talk around, you know, not have to talk around the houses because you're worried about how that message is going to land. Knowing, knowing because the trust is there, knowing that you know, your people won't take offense to that directness. And, you know, I think when you get it right, and, and I've seen this on a number of occasions, right up to, you know, kind of C-level board discussions, is you can have really very vigorous discussions with one another, knowing that, you know, despite this getting a little bit heated, that there's passion, uh, and knowing that everyone's got the interests of one another in the firm at heart, and so that trust exists, and knowing that you can walk out of that meeting and go and have a drink together down at the pub. And, you know, I, I, I think that that's, that's where you've got a sign that an organization's culture is really, really healthy, right? Yeah, and, but that's a really, really interesting point because 
you can sit down and have maybe not a crisis meeting, but have a conversation where you're really, you know, touching the bones of, of, of the sort of topic and really getting to, to the middle of it where some people, depending on how sensitive they are, could take that really to heart. And at the end of it, you say, you know, you go out and have a drink and you realize that's business, but it's for the greater good. That's why we're doing it. Look, looking at your background now, you've worked for <clears throat> the two most recent firms you've worked for, both US centric firms. Both times you were CEO of Europe and then head of technology for Europe. We talk about going to have that beer afterwards. You obviously don't have that luxury with the US office. And at the same time, um, both companies you've worked for have been headquartered in the US. How much of a role can you play in dictating not just culture locally, but culture globally? And how do you actually do that? Because when we talk about finance, especially being over here in the UK, and none of the firms within this world nowadays are all headquartered in the US. And so you don't ever want to feel like you're a sort of lonely satellite office that isn't really contributing to the, the, the sort of wider good of the business. How does someone like yourself and maybe even people below you as sort of hands-on engineers in that office contribute not just to the local culture, but to the global one? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's a great, great question. And, and you know, again, it's... It's about establishing trust and the trust comes from personal relationships. So it's about starting to get to know people at a really, you know, quite intimate level uh, mm. to establish that trust. I think, you know, one of the challenges, and I, I always describe to my team, you know, working for a, a company that's headquartered in Chicago, they're, they're 3000 miles away and six hours time difference away. And it maybe doesn't seem like very much because you can jump on a plane and be there in nine, 10 hours, but actually it's, it's a huge distance. And in many sense, this is being that kind of remote, uh, being, being remote like that, you are somewhat at the mercy of people's willingness to communicate. And I think in order to get over that, you've got to demonstrate yourself that you're, you're willing to over-communicate, almost over-communicate, you know, spend twice or three times as much time demonstrating how important that communication and hoping that others are able to follow your example and always encourage people within the team to create their own kind of network links within the firm across offices. You know, I think even then there are challenges, right? There's, there's what I tend to call as the, the water cooler effect, which is, you know, somebody in a remote office, you know, you can have these formal meetings and these informal communication channels, but they still conversations and, and decisions end up happening in a kitchen between two people and maybe in a remote office, you don't hear about it for, for two weeks. And then you're like, when did this happen? <laughs> you know, it, it can be challenging and you've got to be patient. But, you know, I think, again, you know, it all comes down to making sure that you are communicating over and over and that you've created these kind of multiple links within an organization to keep that information flowing. And, and I mean, you're now joining more of a US, um, sorry, UK firm, your next one. So maybe this point is slightly invalid, but surely COVID and work from home now is given every company that is in a similar position to where you were previously with the US and a UK office, the opportunity to build culture much more effectively because I think you and I'm talking about it. You know, every call that I do now is face to face. People didn't know what I looked like two years ago on LinkedIn. Whereas now, no one, you know, people really hate to see me nowadays. I'm popping up every day on their on their computers. But um, it's so much easier now, right? If someone video called me two years ago, I'd be a bit sort of starved. I don't think I had a webcam two years ago in my in my computer. So um, it must be a lot easier now, right? Just to to do that. I, I think. You know, I, I think most most firms I've worked with have invested heavily in communication technology. And you know, I think video conferencing has always been important. But I think 
you know, even then, you know, there, there are meetings you have where maybe you're just at the end of the phone. And it's hard, right? I mean, so much of how we communicate as, as, as humans is kind of this nonverbal communication. It's, it's body language, it's facial expression. And you lose so much of that. And you, you do capture, you know, I think, quite a lot of it in a video conferencing now. And, the, you know, the, the, the access to this, this technology over the last year particularly has increased enormously and been fantastic. But I think the other thing that, you know, certainly as somebody who has been in senior positions in a, in a quote, satellite office, I think the big step change has been, you know, whereas before I was always trying to explain, look, these are some of the frictions I've incurred, you know, just trying to get information, trying to keep communication channels open. Suddenly now in lockdown, both here and in the US, everyone is in this situation and realizing, oh, these are, the, these are the communication challenges that you've seen. I get it now. Um, you know, to the degree where, you know, towards the beginning of last year, I was getting a lot of feedback saying, oh, yeah, I think, I think actually you'll become a lot more effective remote communication. And I think the reality is it wasn't really doing anything different. It was just everyone now was seeing how, how challenging it can be. But I think the key, the key thing I observed is that, you know, whereas before people might just you know, type an IAM or fire an email and it wouldn't really be, or it'd be semi real time. Now it's so easy to just click a button and have some FaceTime. And I do think like the, the way, way you're unable to be, you know, true face-to-face. -face. And even when, you know, you, you're, you're maybe the opposite ends of, of the same office, being able to do this is so powerful that the, the technology has enabled new forms of communication, which I think in terms of, establishing and maintaining culture is only positive. 100%. I completely agree. And actually, to support that point, I mean, when I first joined GQR five years ago, I, I thought that the world of recruitment is only as far as talent acquisition itself. And actually, now you realise that to build teams and build effective teams, there's actually more important things to that. And so now we, we have like we have four aspects to our business, one of which is talent acquisition, but people like myself are involved in all four. And some of the other main areas that we focus on is people intelligence. And we use, you know, we have sort of employer branding, we have events and experiences, but people intelligence is one of our um, key functions that is so instrumental in, in helping firms because we try and explain to them that we're affecting, we're, we're coming at you quite directly saying, we're gonna assess your internal hiring process to see what the candidate feedback is for people who are rejected, or even you know the retention ratios of what you've had for the last five years into people internally, understand where the issues are. And that could help you in the long term in terms of developing culture, improving culture, and having a firm in a, in a position where they can be more effective and they can grow um, more effectively. On from that, and then talking about this, this is probably the first time that you can probably give quite an open um, comment to this. You've just secured yourself a new role. So you've been on the other side of the interview process now, this time around. You've been for the last five, 10 years of your career on the other side, interviewing other people. What do you think firms need to do to, to improve the way that they're, they're hiring people? Because I hear it too often now, you used a recruiter to get to get in 07, right? The recruiters can either be a huge benefit to a process or sometimes if you pick the wrong one, they could really take away that interaction between you and the client and you don't hear feedback, you don't understand exactly why you were rejected, you don't get a clear message as to why they like you so much. What's important for businesses moving forward now when they're trying to hire? What do you think some of the key things are that you need to maintain? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's difficult, right? Recruitment is just hard, right? And especially yeah. hard and important where you've got a culture that you you want to maintain. And, and, and you know, I, I do think as a firm, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about what it is that you're trying to achieve with your recruitment process before you even start. Like, what are you filtering for? Who is it you're looking for? What's your ideal candidate look like? I mean, I think it, it's challenging, right? Because at the end of the day, however much process, however much scientific method you put into that recruitment, there's still an element of randomness in it. And, and ultimately, it's going to end up, you know, a lot of decisions end up as, as the decision of a 30 or a 60 minute conversation between two people. It, it is it is really hard. And at the same time, it's almost, or I think it's almost impossible to measure how good your recruitment process is because you never get to find out how it might have panned out if you'd made different hiring decisions, right? But I do think, you know, if you are looking for outsized team performance, then it should never ever be a box ticking exercise. The candidate shouldn't just fail because they don't know the answer to something or there's some piece of knowledge that you know or the candidate doesn't know or you've got a difference of opinion on, on some particular topic, right? You know, and, and, I, and I think, like you mentioned, it, it, it is incredibly important that because in a sense, this is a little bit like dating, right, is, is you're trying to get to a mutual decision about whether you want to hire somebody and whether that person wants to join you. So do think it's important that it is a two way process and that it's a dialogue and not just if you like an interview, right, is that there is feedback as the candidate does get that feedback and there's it's either clear why a candidate didn't get the role or you know you've come to a joint decision that even though you might like this candidate it still wouldn't be right for them at this moment in time so i do think that that candidate experience is incredibly important and it needs to be part of how you design the interview process that ultimately what you want is even for those candidates that you you reject you want them to have a positive experience of the process because they are going to go out on the market they're going to talk to other headhunters they're going to they're going to give an impression of that brand and if that brand is negative it's now really hard to attract the talent that you do want to find whereas if that if that uh, feedback is positive hey look i didn't get into this firm but i really enjoyed the process i really enjoyed talking to the people involved in the process then that ultimately is the best brand ambassadors you can have and if and I think, you know, that is actually where creating these strong teams, creating this strong culture starts, right? And you have um, not just helped people out there that are hiring people, but for anyone out there that's single and going on dates as well, hopefully Steve has helped you out there. Be honest with your partner if you don't like them. Tell them what you think. <laughs> save them the hassle and leave them with a good experience. So there you go. <laughs> we cover everything on this podcast, guys, not just finance. We're, uh, we're, we're dating experts as well. It's tough in this industry, isn't it? Just to wrap up, because it's, I mean, the hedge fund industry and the finance industry in general is large, but over here in, in the UK, we are a lot smaller than the guys in the US. And, and so even like using the example of, of, you know, KCG or Getco at the time, arguably, especially in the position you had, you probably know a lot of the guys that, that came from there and not many of those people are now outside of finance. They're now working at other hedge funds. They could have gone to a Google or a Facebook, but they're all still probably in the industry. And over time, even from your education, potentially, you know, you just get to know these people. And so interviewing and hiring 
can sometimes be easier initially to get through the door to say, I know these people, let me get myself a conversation. But maybe, maybe you have more of a reputation to uphold as well when, you, when you're giving feedback, right? So maybe it's hard if you, if you know someone and they get you through the door and then things don't work out. It's like, you've got to break the message well, don't you? Yeah, I think so. I think like you say, particularly in Europe or particularly in London, the community is very, very small in, you know, and, and in the prop firms in particular, but if you include the funds, you know, there's, there's a relatively small, you know, few thousand people most, and you, you do come across the same names over and over again. And, and, and you know, that, that network's important, right? That, you know, you are constantly keeping at least somewhat abreast of where people are at, what they're doing, how, how, how they're doing, how things are progressing. So, yeah, I mean, I think keeping good, good links into the industry is, you know, it's, in, it's incredibly important and, um, you know, will continue to be important for the, for the foreseeable future. Last question, hedge funds working remotely, can a hedge fund effectively work remotely full-time in your opinion, moving forward or a prop firm? I mean, I think, I think if you've got an established culture and I think if, if that trust already exists between an exist, you know, between existing teams, then I don't see any any reason why it can't, right? I, I you know, for the last year, I was running a, a truly geographically distributed team, and, and it actually worked really, really well. We didn't have any problems because we knew one another. I think where it becomes challenging is how do you onboard new talent into that teams? Because now it's that it's that getting to know you, it's getting to establish that trust, and I think that's that's the difficulty, and I think that's where you know, FaceTime is important. And I do think, you know, moving forward, you know, assuming we're locked down for, I don't know, another three or six months, you know, I think where maybe people start to struggle is where you don't have as much social interaction with people at work as you did before. And so some of that, you know, some of those ties start to decay a little bit. And so I do think, you know, even remotely, it's important to keep that social interaction going even if it's you know an online quiz or whatever it is after that <laughs> steve and i spoke about this last week and i said that our company are trying to do something similar when we have new talent onboarding them we're trying to you know show us around your house do a little video show us where you live because you know we see each other every day in, in the video but this is all you see you don't know what else i've got going on i've got um one of my colleague josh who is an incredible artist musically by the way and um and like, he plays so many instruments and he's got his own little room and we said show us around and just play a little song show us what you can do because we, we can't see that side of things we've got a uh, a cheese and wine tasting night in a few weeks time and, and i think steve unfortunately has just postponed it but even with his own children had a, had a painting session over the weekend so it is so so important and although it's not the only option i think most time after work people rely on drinks and you know after after hours um a pub or a restaurant or something to get to know each other i think now we're, we're starting to do things that you never would have done before like painting like wine tasting making fajitas whatever it may be and it is so so important right well steve it has been an absolute pleasure before we wrap up can you give the the viewers a quick story about why you've got what you've got behind you in the um in, in the house yeah because I, I, yeah. I first, first saw it ridiculously i said is it a telescope but it's not obviously it's a, <laughs> it's a lot no, it is a, where, when i was at university i spent quite a lot of time in the local theatre, sort of doing backstage uh, production, and that actually is a old parkan theatre light that's been uh, converted into a domestic light. So that sort of sits in the corner of my office here. So awesome! I question whether he's Batman and whether he's just kept it for, for in the night, but obviously not. Well, Steve, I think 
this will um, be released before you, you join a new firm. So people will have an opportunity to listen, get to know you. And then hopefully by the end of the month, when everything's announced and released, we can sort of touch back again and see how things are going and maybe get an episode two in as well. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure. I think everyone's going to take an awful lot from this. So thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us and, and best of luck with the new role. It's been a pleasure. Thanks all. Thanks, Steve. See you later.